from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's CER podcast. I'm John Springford, Deputy Director of the CER. And today we're going to be talking about the question of vaccines in Europe, which is obviously pretty vexed. Uh, but we've got a, an excellent panel um, to help us uh, get through this. First and foremost, uh, welcome back, Tomasz Velatek, who used to be Director of Foreign Policy here at the CER, but much more importantly, um, is now a Slovakian MP. He resigned last week as chair of uh, the Slovakian Parliament's European Affairs Committee. Uh, and that's because Tomasz's prime minister, Igor Matovic, flew in 200,000 doses of Russia's Sputnik vaccine, which has obviously caused a flurry of reaction, um, both within Slovakia and outside. Um, also joining today are Camino Mortero Martinez, who is senior research fellow at CER, and Christian Odendahl, our chief economist. And they're going to talk a bit about uh, the vaccine politics in Spain, Germany, and maybe a little about the economy, if we can prompt Christian to do that. So uh, welcome to you all. Um, before we kick off, I, I'm just going to give you a quick reminder of where we are, um, which is obviously pretty difficult because this is a highly politicised area, but I'll, I'll try to be as fair minded as I possibly can. Here's the picture as we record, the EU remains well behind the US and UK on vaccinations. It has administered nine doses per 100 population versus 27 per 100 in the US and 34 in the UK. That's in large part down to missteps with the vaccine procurement programme, which has been administered by the European Commission. Um, the story of this has been pretty well documented, but here's my, I hope, fair minded summary. The first thing to say is that the EU rightly feared that if member states all had their own programmes uh, for getting vaccines, rich member states would buy up all the vaccines and there would be problems of supply uh, for um, poorer or maybe smaller countries. The EU also thought that they, would, uh, that they would be able to get vaccines cheaper if they clubbed together. And this is the really important point. When it came up to, when it came to investing in scaling up manufacturing capacity, the EU spent quite a lot less than the US and the UK. And if you think what the rationale was behind uh, US manufacturing support under their Operation Warp Speed, the idea was that you might waste money on manufacturing capacity for a vaccine that didn't work if you splashed loads of money on all sorts of different vaccines. But if you subsidised enough vaccine candidates, you would pick a winner and you would get supply faster. Um, and interestingly, Germany wanted to spend quite a lot more on um, BioNTech and CureVac, who are producing these relatively new mRNA vaccines back in the autumn. But uh, countries like Poland and Bulgaria, which didn't have vaccine industries themselves, pushed back quite strongly. And the upshot was that this cost cutting meant that the EU had lower prices than the US and the UK did, according to leaked documents. And that might have contributed to slower de deliveries, perhaps because some countries prioritised markets where they had higher prices, the US and the UK, perhaps because manufacturing capacity was less developed because it hadn't been subsidised as much as in other countries. In terms of approving the approvals process, there isn't much evidence that the EMA was that much slower, really, as measured from formal application to the decision. 
Um, with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, for example, they applied to the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration in the US, 11 days earlier than the European Medicines Agency. And the EMA authorised the use of Pfizer 10 days after the FDA. So there wasn't really any kind of delay apart from in the formal application by drug companies themselves. And that might be because some countries habitually seek approval in the US market first because it's more profitable than European markets. But anyway, it's not a huge difference. However, the Commission was also slower to sign contracts for key vaccines. Um, the UK signed its interim deal with AstraZeneca three months earlier than the EU, for example, and that meant that AstraZeneca had more time to iron out glitches in the manufacturing process. So that's kind of my summary of where we are. What it means, obviously, is that there are some big impacts potentially on the number of people who are going to get ill with COVID and die. There could be some big economic effects. We can discuss that later. And the final point that I want to make before I hand over to more interesting people than me is there have been recent signs that solidarity within the European Union has been fraying. Hungary, Poland, Czechia and Thomas's home country, Slovakia, have been getting seeking deals with Russia's Sputnik or uh, China's Sinovac or Sinopharm vaccines. And that's before they've been authorised for use across the EU by the EMA. Um, and Austria and Denmark are in talks with Israel about teaming up to manufacture vaccines. Germany has a side deal with Pfizer for 30 million doses, but that's from last year. So all in all, it's all a bit messy. And uh, that's my summary over. So Thomas, let's go to you first. Perhaps you could tell us about what happened in Slovakia first and, and a bit about why, why you resigned as um, head of the European Affairs Committee. Uh, John, thanks for the question. Thanks for the generous introduction. It occurred to me as I listened to you that I'm uh, at the ripe old age of 48, primarily becoming known for being ex-something, ex-CR, ex-chairman uh, of the European Affairs Committee. It was supposed to happen a lot later in life than one is probably <laughs> known to, <laughs> what one used to be, but here I go. Um, Look, uh, can actually before I get to Slovakia's case, let me actually sort of continue with your theme. Uh, you described beautifully how we got to where we are. Now, what are the political ramifications uh, on the ground, so to speak? So, seeing from where I sit, um, my second to last day's day in, in the committee um, chairman's office, the reality is that the amount of vaccines that is available is, is woefully short as, as opposed to what the, uh, what the demand is. Slovakia is, it, it also happens that this part of the world, Slovakia, Slovenia, Czech Republic, are currently so the world leaders in, in, as measured in, uh, in numbers of people infected and hospitalized with COVID. So the background to the decision by Barmenster Matovic to buy Sputnik uh, um, is that we are truly, you know, by some important measures, probably the worst performing country in the world, um, including the important metrics of, of number of people um, hospitalized and dying. What's also happening is, of course, that the European Union, and, and you know, not, not entirely without reason, you laid out the shortcomings on, on part of the commissions and, um, and the assumptions that have gone into the negotiating process. Um, so as a result, the European Commission is, is catching a bit of a bad reputation. The view, uh, even among friends uh, of, of the EU like myself, is that we could, this could have been and should have been done a lot better. So... As you might imagine, this is a wonderful sort of 
testing ground or a wonderful fertile ground for uh, the likes of Sputnik and, and the Chinese and Russian governments um, to march in. I mean, they are, at the end of the day, opportunists. They don't create chinks in our armor in Europe, but they do exploit them. The fact is that the combination of, of again, uh, mistakes made by, by commission, and it should be stated, by the way, for the sake of fairness, it wasn't just the commission. It was a commission advised by the member states' government. So I don't want to put this squarely on the shoulders of Ursula von der Leyen. The reality is she had been advised all along by the steering committee, uh, staffed and people by representatives of the government. So this is a collective failure. Let's, let's be very blunt. But... Um, and what's happened is that because of the woefully low amount of vaccines available in Slovakia and, and in the neighboring countries and this super high number of people who are dying literally sort of all around you, uh, it's become a wonderful opportunity for the Russians to march in and say, hey, the EU has failed you. Uh, you've been left short, left hanging. Here is 200,000 of Sputnik. Uh, and don't, don't worry too much about the European Medicines Agency. You know, we've been administering it for the last few months. Here is the 46 countries uh, that we're already selling it to. Never mind that it's the likes of Nicaragua, uh, Bolivia, and, and non-recognized entities such as Republika Srpska. Uh, you know, basically take it. Um, and you don't have to be Viktor Orban to fall for it. I mean, the reality is, uh, Viktor Orban has a long-standing policy of causing up to the Russians, um, which he's been sticking with for the past few years. You know, I, I'm obviously no fan of the prime minister whose coalition government I just resigned from, but it has to be said that you know the way he is, he sees this, uh, you know, the opportunity was here to seize. <clears throat> the Russians came bearing gifts that are very difficult to say no to. Um, it's, you know, it's regrettable that the European Medicines Agency hasn't been able to look into this, but really the responsible thing to do uh, in this situation is to just buy it and administer it. I disagree. That's why I resigned. But I do want to point out that the context for the decision on, on the part of the Prime Minister is, again, an, an awful lot of people dying. We are really at the height of the crisis. Things are ne were never as bad or have never been as bad during from the onset of COVID as they have been the last two weeks. There's not enough vaccines coming from the commission. The Russians came with, with an offer, uh, which was simply too difficult to say no to. That's the context. I should also end by saying yeah, that the decision to buy touched off a government crisis. Uh, it's not actually evident that the prime minister will survive the crisis. I'm the second uh, MP to resign. More baby on the way. It is entirely possible that the foreign minister and a party he represents will resign as well. Not only because of Sputnik, but, but with Sputnik being a big factor. Okay, that's wonderful. Thanks very much for that summary and um, congratulations on your bravery in terms of your resignation as well, uh, Thomas. Um, uh, perhaps you could just walk us through why um, using Sputnik or, or um, Sinovac is, is a problem if they're safe and effective. Um, because I, I guess a lot of people might be thinking, well, shouldn't we set geopolitical considerations aside? since getting shots into arms as quickly as possible is critical, particularly um, when you know, you're know you suffering a really bad wave of the virus as you are in Slovakia. So we know they're effective. We don't know that they're safe. And that's an important difference. Uh, so we know from the study in Lancet, actually two studies in, in, in Lancet magazine, that they have, they're pretty effective, apparently up to 92% effectiveness, which is admirable, up there with the uh, Pfizer's and Moderna's of this world. Um, we know very little about how safe it is. That's a different ball of wax. That's a different question because safety is, is determined by the consistency of the production process, whether 
the number of manufacturing lines, and it's not even evident, it's not even actually publicly known how many manufacturing centers there are in the world that make Sputnik. It is pretty clear, by the way, that Russia has signed far more orders than it is able to satisfy from the production from the Russian plants alone. So we now know they will be, uh, they're already signing deals with plants as far away as South Korea, uh, Brazil and India uh, to help make, uh, make up for the production shortfalls, which also means in practice that the Sputnik we will probably receive in Slovakia it will be made in, in a production facility that, that doesn't even exist now, or it may exist, it's probably in India, and it probably manufactures, to, to exaggerate a little bit, aspirin. Uh, so w- the, an important part of the consideration before approving any vaccine is, again, not whether it's just whether it's effective. That's actually not even the most important question uh, and, uh, an authority, a medical authority will ask itself. The most important question is, is it safe? Because if it isn't effective, the worst that happens is that it does nothing, meaning that it basically doesn't give you additional uh, protection against the COVID, but, but it doesn't kill you. If it's not safe, it contains you know, it's impurities, what no, what no, it may give you hepatitis and it may actually kill you. And my concern is uh, what I laid out very clearly in interviews and, and, and clearly very unsuccessfully to the prime minister who proceeded to do what I advised um, against what I advised. But my point was simple. Uh, I see the the upside. I see the effectiveness um, being very high. I also see, and this is an important point, there's a number of people in Slovakia who are more willing to take Sputnik than Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca. I mean, there is a, 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 a part of a society that simply feels closer to, to um, Russia than to, to the Western counterparts. That's also reality. So I see the upsides. Uh, vaccines are woefully uh, short and uh, some people will only take Sputnik. But the downsides, the possibility that we, that we vaccinate people with something that may backfire, may, may turn out to be impure, what would happen then is that the, that the um, confidence of people in the vaccination process as such um, will collapse. I think the, the upsides, sorry, the downsides are just far more important and bigger than the, than the upsides. And let me also stay that the one country in Europe that has the lowest vaccination rate as measured not by the uh, population overall, but by the number of vaccines available. In other words, what is the one country in Europe that has administered the fewest amount of vaccines um, compared to what it has in reserve and in storage is Hungary. Uh, This is partly because they have bought Sputnik and have not yet begun administering it, but also because the decision to mix in Sputnik and Sinovac with all the other registered vaccines, uh, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, has caused people to second guess uh, the vaccination process. Apparently what's happening anecdotally uh, is that people, uh, people's turn comes up, they show up in the doctor's office, they're being offered a vaccine, they find out, oh, it's Sinovac, it's, it's, it's Sputnik, I don't trust it. They walk away. So what's happened as a result of the government's decision in Hungary to mix registered vaccines with unregistered ones is that people's confidence in the entire process has, has dropped and, and far fewer people uh, in Hungary are willing to get vaccinated than in Slovakia. I don't think that's a route we want to go down. I think that goes against the whole idea of vaccinating as many people as quickly as possible. I see the upsides of Sputnik. I just don't think it's worth the downsides. Okay, thank you. Pithy and uh, um, extremely convincing. Just raising our sights a little bit, um, and, and thinking about uh, Austria and Denmark's vaccine alliance with Israel, where they've essentially said that you know let's let's try to think about how we can um, manufacture vaccines together. Um, how can we learn from you, Israel? Um, we've got 
you know, new variants coming down the track, it's likely that we're going to need booster vaccines. Um, so why don't we create alliances with countries outside the EU who seem to have done pretty well? Um, what, are, what are your thoughts about this? Do you think this could be beneficial, really, that it was a bit of a mistake to go at the level of the EU and that um, it's, a, it, it's a better idea to have coalitions of countries working together, trying to um, improve the supply of vaccines for their own citizens and then hopefully through some competitive process that we end up with uh, vaccines kind of trickling down across various different uh, member states as a result of that. Um, do, 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 you, do you agree with, with what they're doing or do you think that there are risks that um, poorer or smaller EU countries won't be able to get access to new vaccines as quickly without the EU essentially running the show? So you know, and I'm on a bit of a thin ice in a sense that I haven't thought about the production side as much as about the uh, sort of reception side and the approval process. My sense is that while I see the sense of going and sticking strictly to the EU process when it comes to acquisition of vaccines, for all the reasons you laid out, John, uh, you don't want to start sort of a carnivorous competition between the EU member states themselves. It wouldn't badly and it's against the whole idea of EU unity. And I, and I, and I by the way, agree with all of that. My problem is, again, with the terms of the negotiations, the emphasis on liability being offloaded on the manufacturer and the lowest price possible. I think we overplay that, but I have no fundamental problem with common European approach. In fact, the point I often make in a domestic political debate is that, you know, to all those who are cheering the arrival of Russian and Chinese vaccines and, and, and talk, talking down the European approach, I tell them, look, the alternative to the common European approach in Slovakia's case, for a country the size of Slovakia, isn't that we, you know, become like Israel or like UK and, and vaccinate 20, maybe 40% of the population. In fact, had we not gone down the route of common EU acquisition, we would probably be up there with the Ukrainians and the Belarusians with something like two or 3% of the population having been vaccinated. The EU common approach has played well. Now, this is, of course, all talking about the acquisition and the common acquisition of it. Um, I have less of a problem, and I, and I might be naive, um, but I have a less of a problem with... Uh, sort of pursuing separate routes, um, both the EU route and sort of multilateral route uh, uh, when it comes to uh, boosting production. I just don't, don't see the, uh, I don't see the, the, the same dangers applying to uh, pursuing these two approaches simultaneously. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, this could be a sort of a, a thousand flowers bloom uh, kind of mindset. I, I see less of a chance of getting into a, 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 a dog eats dog kind of situation when it comes to boosting the production facilities. Uh, I, I want to believe that Thierry Breton, who is, of course, the commissioner in charge of now boosting the, the production facilities for vaccines within Europe, that he will you know, he'll advance as, as, as far and as nimbly as the individual member states do. But I also acknowledge that often member states, judging by the Danes and, 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 and the Austrians, often member states do move faster. Uh, and we are in a bit of a dire situation. So I have no fundamental problem with pursuing both approaches at the same time when it comes to the production of vaccines. Um, I think we were absolutely right to stick uh, and to defend the common European approach when it comes to the acquisition uh, of vaccines, because there we would have ended up in a, in a literally just a kind of a dog-eats-dog situation. Yeah, and I guess there's um, there's continuing risks of that. If, if we are going to have to have booster vaccines and there's pools of COVID that are happening um, in uh, countries outside Europe, which have been less, you know, where vaccinations have been less prevalent, then there's a, a, a risk that, um, you know, we just end up with 
the same sort of scrabble for um, new vaccines against these variants in the future. And so acquisition, acquisition at the EU level um, and distribution certainly seems to make sense. Can I add a word, John, just really quickly? The Commission isn't blind to the possibility that so the spikes in COVID in one part of Europe put undue pressure and really make it very difficult to say no to you know, Russian and Chinese offer. So what I give the Commission credit where credit is due, what is also put in place is this mechanism where countries can receive essentially an advance on, 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 on their, uh, from their uh, allocated rate. Um, and also a secondary mechanism has kicked in place. So Slovakia has received, again, an advance from our sort of allocated rates um, and share uh, that was, I think, 100,000 vaccines that were not due to receive for another few months. But given the super high numbers, uh, we've received them earlier. Also, countries have begun loaning each other's share to each other. So Slovakia has just been loaned 15,000 doses of, um, I should know, I, I, I don't know, I apologize, either Pfizer or, or Moderna by France. So yes, you're right to say that uh, if the EU system were too rigid, countries that have spikes in covid would be tempted to go outside the system. But the, it's not like the Commission has been blind to it. It has come up with mechanisms. If they've come a bit too late in Slovakia's case, Sputnik was faster. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. All right, let's turn to Camino and Christian now, who are going to give us a bit of an update on how things are going on in um, their respective countries. I say they're, you know, uh, Camino is in, in Brussels, but as a Spaniard, uh, Camino, it would, be, it would be great to just have a bit of a, a rundown from you about how lockdowns are going uh, in Spain, how cases are going, how the vaccine rollout is going. And if you want to mention um, Belgium as well, uh, that would be helpful. Uh, and then Christian, I'll, I'll ask the same question to you, Camila. Thank you, John. Um, so in absolute terms, Spain is actually doing quite badly. It's the seventh country in the world in number of cases, and it's only behind some of the world's worst hit countries like the US, France, or the UK. But in relative terms, so at the moment, the situation is actually getting better. Because unlike other countries, which you know decided to close down right at the time Europe was experiencing its second wave in the autumn, like the UK, or France, or Belgium, Spain has gone for a less stringent approach, which has resulted in a third wave that peaked in January with around 40,000 cases per day, which is crazy. And now we are uh, at around 1,500 with 285 confirmed deaths yesterday, I think. So both cases and deaths are falling and the worst hit uh, regions in Spain are basically Madrid, so the capital, and uh, African enclaves of Ceuta and Melilla. When it comes to vaccines, though, Spain's low rollouts, I think this is not going to be a surprise for anybody, is no different from other EU countries. As of March 8th, only around 3% of the population has been, uh, had been fully vaccinated. And of course, this is taking into account that um, you know, Spain is following uh, Europe's approach to uh, the AstraZeneca Pfizer vaccine. So we are talking about people who received the two jabs uh, because we are not applying the delay that you guys are doing in the UK. And from um, some anecdotal evidence, um, what's happening with the AstraZeneca vaccine is being administered at the moment to uh, teachers and sort of other essential workers, but it's not 
being uh, uh, given to uh, the elderly, even though um, I think it's now being uh, approved as safe enough. But um, effectively, this is also slowing down the rollout of vaccination in Spain. When it comes to lockdowns, uh, you probably all know that health competences are devolved in this quasi-federal country uh, that we have. Um, when the pandemic first hit, the central government declared a state of alarm and introduced one of the world's hardest lockdowns. If you remember, people were not able to leave their homes for anything which was not going the, to get their groceries or going to work if they were essential workers. And this included kids, which was um, pretty insane, to be honest. Uh, now, the problem for the government at that time was that it needed to get the approval of the parliament to extend those measures every two weeks. So after three months of tensions, Prime Minister Sanchez finally lost the support of the parliament in June. And ever since, the government's strategy has been to fully devolve the management of the pandemic to the regions. And those can take measures from a menu set up by the central government. So, of course, that means that the situation is very different depending on the region. And there is a stark difference in between um, those regions governed by the Conservative Pepe party and those governed by PSOE, Podemos or other affiliated um, parties. So, for example, bars and restaurants never closed down in Madrid, which I think um, is good news for everybody who is now uh, flying there to have a weekend uh, of like drinking and, and eating outside. Uh, but they did in Catalonia and there are some regions which are completely shut off. Uh, for example, Valencia or my own region of Asturias in the northwest. And both are uh, governed by the um, Socialist Party. Uh, OK, I mean, that's a, that's an incredibly helpful summary of where we are uh, and in terms of the, the pandemic and the management of it. Obviously, the slow rollout of vaccinations has caused quite a lot of political problems uh, for the European Commission. But I think it would be really helpful for our listeners to understand how it's playing out in terms of domestic politics in Spain um, and whether uh, it's likely to lead to, uh, you know, some uh, the potential for the government to um, to collapse or uh, for there to be a general election or, or, or whether, you know, you see this as essentially something which is going to be got over in the second quarter. Right, so yesterday I read an interview with Spanish anthropologist, which is called Alberto del Campo, who said something that I, you know, found really striking and really true, which is that the pandemic was harder on Mediterranean cultures because not being able to be, you know, out and about and being touchy-feely, as we often are, angers us, makes us really angry. And I could not agree more because what I see in Spain is that people are angry and they are angry at the pandemic, they're angry at the politicians and very scarily, they're increasingly being very angry at the European Union. Because as you know, angry people tend to think others are out to get them more often than not. So this means that everything is politics in Spain right now. The slow, the slow vaccine rollout, surely, but also the lockdown, the differences between regions, the curfew. So everything and everyone is politicized. And to me, the problem is that this gives very little room for calm, for rational debates on what will happen next or how the country will actually chart its economic recovery. 
And in terms of the coalition government, I mean, the coalition government has had a bumpy road from the outset. And there is major infight going on at the moment uh, between the coalition partners for several things, uh, from the pandemic to the Catalan leaders uh, to the recovery fund. So the vaccine rollout is not having a particular impact um, on the coalition itself, but the pandemic is and has. So in my view, the only thing that is basically preventing the coalition government from collapsing in Spain right now, it's that there is no credible alternative. Uh, but I think that's regardless of whether or not, you know, we're in a lockdown with a pandemic or whatever. I think all the things have taken over uh, ever since, you know, like uh, the third wave started and, and we're seeing um, potential yeah, for, for a collapse, but for other reasons unrelated to, to, the, to the vaccine uh, rollout. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, Christian, similar questions to you. I mean, Germany has got a federal election coming up this year. Um, Angela Merkel is not going to be running for chancellor. The CDU is maybe not doing as well in the polls as it was in the first stages of the pandemic. Um, it would be great to hear your views on how the pandemic's going, how management of it's going, how vaccinations are going to affect German politics over the next few months? Sure. So um, in um, in Germany, we have failed to react in time to uh, in the autumn to the second wave. And that means we had to go into various degrees of lockdown since about early November. And the case incidence now is uh, down to 70, which is low by European standards. But with the opening of, of schools and daycares and some shops, there is a fear that we are starting a third wave now. So it's it's fragile at the moment, uh, and we could well end up in, a, in in another lockdown over Easter, which is when many people want to visit their families. So this kind of stop and go uh, lockdown policies is of course very exhausting, and we don't seem to have a real strategy of how we want to manage uh, the next couple of months. Um, but just as Spain, Germany is a federal country, and public health is in the in the hands of the state governments, and so you will always have this political point scoring dynamic going on among heads of states uh, in, in, in Germany and, and federal politicians. Um, but I think the, m the main issue frustrating people is that we don't seem to have made any progress on some of the other policies that you could use to fight a pandemic, right? Other than lockdown. So like a testing scheme that works or the vaccine procurement and rollout or you know air filters in schools or digitalization of the health services, the COVID app, on all these things, um, I think the population has become impatient, uh, and this is what's starting to bite now. My parents, for example, are over 70 and have yet to receive uh, an invitation to get their first shot. So the frustration um, in Germany is growing, and I think this, this will inform um, the, uh, the, the upcoming elections. You're right, the, the CDU uh, has declined in the polls again. So maybe for a bit of context, at the start of the pandemic, the Greens were the most uh, were the closest to the CDU, and the CDU was in the, in the high 20s, which is quite low by historical standards for the CDU. Then came the pandemic, and sort of uh, Angela Merkel's um, you know role as as a crisis manager um, could could help the CDU um, go back up to almost 40 percent, and they have they've been in in these numbers um, since then. But the main dossiers for managing this pandemic are in the hands of the CDU, right? The Chancellor. Um, the head of the European Commission, incidentally, is a German CDU politician. The health minister is a CDU politician. Um, some of the most prominent state prime ministers 
are from the CDU, notably Armin Laschet, the head of the CDU. So, you know, the CDU benefited while the management of the pandemic was going relatively well. But now that the management of the pandemic is not going well, um, the CDU is starting to suffer. I think on top of that comes that we have two state elections coming up in which the CDU was never going to do particularly well because the current state prime ministers there are from the Greens and the Social Democrats and are very popular figures. Um, but I think all this combined uh, in the run-up to the, to the upcoming state elections uh, will be a real headache for the, for the CDU. Now, the federal election is only in September, so it's still a few months away. Um, but uh, this is the federal election without Angela Merkel, and the CDU has to sort of find its own candidate to, to challenge the Social Democrats and the Greens, uh, which they have yet to do, and it's always easier to choose that one while you're strong rather than while you as a party are struggling. So the pandemic um, could not be going worse for the CDU. Thank you. Excellent summary, and it's going to be an interesting few months. I mean, my my question, I guess, to all of you, and I'd, I'd like to finish just on a question to Tomas, really, um, uh, is, okay, in the UK, you know, we've had about as bad a management of the pandemic as you can possibly do. Um, and obviously, there are political differences between countries. But ever since the vaccine programme has taken off and has been a success, uh, the Conservative Party has done better in the polls. And so I suppose my question is, are we reading too much long-term stuff into, into the vaccine issue, both at the national level and potentially at the level of the EU? Um, and that once the vaccine rollout's happening, once we're starting to get back to normal, people will forget it and it won't be such a big deal. Um, Thomas, it'd be great to, great to hear your thoughts on that question, just to conclude. So, as you say, every country's case is different. What I'm about to say applies to the country I know best, Slovakia, and, and for reasons that are going to become obvious. But uh, you're right uh, in the sense that um, it's easy to overplay the, uh, the long-term political consequences of, of, of vaccination. Uh, my sus suspicion is that the government is in real trouble. This is because the Sputnik affair was not an isolated so misstep in, in an otherwise stellar management of a crisis. In, in a sense, it's been, at least for myself, sort of the last straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, I, I had a fundamental problem with the management of the, with the way the government has been managing the crisis long before Sputnik. Um, I, I recognize that all pandemics are tragic, tragic and people would have died no matter how well the government manages it. I also recognize that each pandemic is different. Uh, this bastard of a virus, if I may use that word, is, is, is mutating before our eyes. So it is a particularly different one uh, to nail down. Um, true for all the viruses, but the speed uh, of this one is, is quite amazing. So I also acknowledge that. But having said that, there are some ABCs of, of fighting pandemic, which even I, you know, an international affairs major um, has eventually uh, had eventually had to learn, and you know, one of them is, for example, tracing. You know, it's no good if you test and find out that people are infected if you don't actually trace those that are infected and don't don't assure an effective uh, isolation uh, uh, of them. And and that's just something that a year and a half into the crisis we have not been able to nail down. The government's tracing system, uh, the, the system for tracing infected individuals, has essentially, essentially collapsed. Um, another sort of uh, example of, of mismanagement. 
Um, obviously, we're known for months that the vaccines would eventually come online. Um, this was a, a, a slow brewing kind of process. Um, th- so the government has had months to think about a proper vaccination campaign, uh, about the infrastructure of it, about the, the way you target different age groups, I mean, the, the, the way you approach the 85 and about demographic and the way you let them know about vaccination has to be very different from the way you approach the 40 and below. You know, it does you no good to advertise on TikTok uh, to the 85 plus. So um, you would have expected that a vaccination uh, campaign would have been in place by the time, long before the vaccination itself starts. That hasn't happened. I and mean, we started you know, three weeks later. We're now surprised that so few of the 85 plus have, have been vaccinated. Well, no surprises there. It was a crisis long predicted. So. Uh, yes, you're right, John. I mean, it's it's easy to read too much into. It would be easy to read too much into uh, uh, into the mismanagement of the of the Sputnik alone. But if it's sort of the stage seventeen in a litany of what what are otherwise fairly spectacular missteps, then you have a, a, a proper government crisis brewing. So I suspect this could be. Uh, again, this is a very specific case in Slovakia. Other countries will have done reasonably well in managing the crisis. Um, uh, I may have now a specific vaccination problem. That is not our case. We have had a long-standing problem with with the entire approach to the to the pandemic. That kind of explains also why we're actually coming and, and Christian, we're on a second wave. So I guess doing better. Um, but but our second wave is now third month into in, into lasting. It's been, just been a nonstop misery since really uh, December, uh, four months of of lockdown, uh, and the numbers are not breaking. They're not going down. And that's, that's really hitting the government's reputation uh, and their numbers. And that's why the government may well be on its way towards either collapse or some sort of a reshuffle. OK, wonderful. Um, well, thank you, Thomas Camino and uh, Christian, for your insights. We'll see how many governments manage to survive uh, this, hopefully, final period of the pandemic. Um, and Thomas, it would be great to have you on the CER podcast again soon. Thanks a lot for your insights. Bye. My pleasure entirely. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.